Adventure motorcycling hasn't really been around all that long. In fact, the term itself, adventure motorcycling, was coined in the late 1990s by a fellow named Chris Scott. He's also the author of the Adventure Motorcycle Handbook. Since then, adventure motorcycling has kind of exploded. And I propose that it probably wouldn't have happened if not for a couple of reasons, of which we're going to talk about today. But one of those is the development of special riding techniques that allows us to maneuver adventure bikes in ways that were kind of unthinkable before. And a lot of times it's those professional riders that you see on videos doing amazing things with large adventure bikes that are beyond most people's uh, ability to do. But those riders are the ones that have come up with the skill that that teach the rest of us how to do what we do with our adventure bikes. And today we have one of those riders on, Chris Birch from New Zealand. Chris is well known for his incredible racing wins under the KTM banner. He's won some of the toughest races in the world, from trials to hard enduro. He's an eight times national enduro champion of New Zealand. Uh, several times he's won uh, the Extreme Enduro Roof of Africa, Red Bull Romaniacs. Uh, he's run the Dakar and, and got second place in his class there. All this over 18 years of racing. Chris now spends his time traveling around the world running coaching clinics for adventure riders. And um, he's also one of KTM's highest profile ambassadors. All that coming up today. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's called the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator. It runs off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Now, uh, Best Rest also makes the other motorcycle gear like the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, the Easy Air Tire Gauge, and there's more. They're also the North American distributor for Googletech filters. Their website is cyclepump.com. And of course, mention us when you're talking with them, cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, all Green Chili gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. If you want a set of straps to hold your stuff so you don't have to worry about it going anywhere, then you need to look at Green Chili. Their website is greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. The adventure motorcycle world is a bit of an anomaly. For many, adventure motorcycling is riding large, travel-biased bikes, maybe long distances, combined with riding roads and, and maybe even trails that are probably better suited for a dirt bike or at least some smaller, lighter bike. You could kind of compare it to taking a school bus and converting it for travel, maybe throw on some knobby tires and longer suspension, maybe bolt a winch to it, and then take it four-wheeling. Now, if you're into off-roading and you're a serious off-roader, there's no way you would ever consider driving anything close to a bus like that down a technical trail. Here's another one. Let's consider sport bikes. Sport bikes mimic what you find on the racetrack. Sure, they're not the same bike, but for all intents and purposes, they try to get that street version as close to the race version as possible. Yet with adventure motorcycling, the adventure bike, it's not built 
like a dirt bike. It's not built like a trials bike. It's not even built like a cruiser. Adventure motorcycles tend to be large, heavy machines that are geared toward the street, yet designed to look like they should be off-road and they should be ridden hard off-road. Throughout the evolution of adventure motorcycles, manufacturers didn't try to build their adventure bikes smaller and lighter to mimic off-road bikes. Instead, they made the bikes larger and heavier, moving away from those features, completely opposite to those features that would make it easier to ride in the dirt. Yet they continue to design even more so. They design these bikes to make them look like they're totally dirt-orientated. I think that there's probably two main reasons that allowed adventure motorcycling to develop and become so popular, so incredibly popular as it is right now. One, the fact they look like they can go anywhere. They can handle anything, go to any country, throw in some camping gear and a passport, and you've got serious potential for adventure. That look speaks to a lot of people. The number two reason, which I suggest is even more significant than the first, is that early on in the development of the adventure motorcycling trend, some top off-road riders became interested in riding adventure bikes. But when they got on them and rode them, they felt like heavy, underperforming bikes, to say the least. But they were determined to ride these bikes, ride them in a way that they look like they should be ridden. So with that, these riders worked to invent new skills, to develop new techniques, to find new ways of efficiently riding these oversized bikes slower, more efficiently, So they actually can be ridden into places that you'd never expect to see one. And for the industry, that's great because it's those riders that, well, they've almost fulfilled a prophecy. It's like the adventure motorcycle idea arrived and then those riders went out and said, okay, how can we change the way we ride so that we can make this bike do what it looks like it should do? Well, one of those riders is Chris Birch, or you may know him as the KTM 1190 guy. Yeah, so I've kind of, you know, most people, I guess, listening to this would be more likely to kind of know me as that guy that does the, the silly videos on the 1190s uh, on the big adventure bikes. And how I kind of ended up in that role was kind of a strange story. Um, so I was trying to get my riding schools up and going more in Australia. And uh, we decided that we wanted to try and film some you know, how-to videos to kind of show the guys how I teach, how I break the information down. And so we, I got a guy, uh, got in touch with a guy called Dave Darcy, who does, uh, I think his name's Motorcycle Adventure Dirt Bike Television, to come along and film some videos. He's going to put them on his channel for us and, and help us sort of push the schools up a bit. And we met up at my friend's farm, and it was a really wet, horrible day, not that great for filming. And uh, Dave was fluffing around and taking forever to get his camera gear ready, and I got bored. And uh, I jumped on my friend's 1190 and just started playing around on the 1190, just skidding around the place in the mud and having a good time. And Dave saw what I was doing and said, hey, man, if we do these how-to videos, they're going to get like maybe maybe 50,000 views. If we film you goofing off on the 1190, they'll get half a million views. Why don't we do that? So we just spent the afternoon playing around on the, on the 1190 and filming a bit of that sort of stuff. Dave put some really cool music to it. We chucked it up on on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, half a million views. And then uh, KTM, the dealers in Australia, started to use this video um, as a sales tool. So when the 1190 came out, uh, a lot of people looked at it and went, nah, it's a road bike. You you can't take that thing off-road like you can the 990s, like you could the 950s, that sort of thing. And kind of 
a lot of people turned their nose up at that bike. And so the dealers were kind of using this video as like, hey, look what this idiot's doing. You know, you can totally take this bike off road. Look what it can do. You know, I'm jumping up rock faces and wheeling it through mud and that sort of thing. So from there, KTM Australia said, hey, look, this is really working for us. Uh, can we give you, you know, a couple of thousand bucks and you can go and do, do another one, do a better one? Sure, let's do that. So we jumped in my van and we headed off uh, down to the South Islands or a really beautiful area that I know. And we filmed another video down there. And that went even better. All of a sudden, that's, you know, that's hit like over a million views. And then from there, I basically ended up becoming the adventure bike guy. That went global. And people all around the world, dealerships all around the world, they're using this as an example to show what the bike can do. And uh, the story goes, you know, I wasn't here for it, but there, KTM had a, uh, a big, you know, global uh, marketing managers meeting at, at the factory in Austria. Okay, what are we going to do for adventure bikes? And all these different um, marketing managers around the world, like, well, we're going to get Chris Birch to come. We're going to get Chris Birch to come and do some riding schools and do events with him so that riders, uh, our riders can interact and, you know, get more excited about adventure bike riding. And uh, the boss of marketing for Caden was like, okay, who's this Chris Birch guy? We need to get him on board. And from there, that's how I got the uh, the role as uh, adventure ambassador for KTM. So now uh, a big part of my life is traveling around to different countries, to different uh, events, you know, ride days, rallies, uh, rider training events for KTM, and just getting to meet all these really cool people and really cool situations around the world. Oh, man, it's, it's the best job ever. It's so much fun. My name's Chris Birch. I'm from New Zealand. And I ride motorbikes, teach motorbikes, spend my whole life playing around on motorbikes. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. Where, where does it all come from? Let's talk about where bikes come from in your life. Yeah, I'm very, very fortunate that I was kind of born into a motorcycling family. Um, both my mum and my dad have ridden bikes their whole lives. And we've got this really cool photo on the wall at my, my house here, and it's it's a big frame and there's three photos in it. The first photo is my grandfather standing next to his motorcycle in World War II with his rifle. I'm not quite sure what he was doing, but, uh, you know, in, uh, fighting for England with his motorcycle. Uh, the next photo is my father going around a corner in the Team Britain colours, um, racing in an event called the ISDE on a KTM in 1980. So that was actually the, uh, the time, the day I was born. Uh, dad was racing in France the day I was born. And the last one is me going around a corner racing for New Zealand in the in the ISTE. So, yeah, always been – I don't remember learning to ride a motorbike. You know, just bikes have always been part of my life, part of our, our family and how we do it. I was lucky I got off into such a, such a positive start. And I think probably the most positive start was um, – and the reason I still love riding motorbikes now is – that's what it was about. It wasn't about racing. It wasn't about trying to be the best or anything like that. It was just about having fun on bikes as a family. And fortunately, that still happens now. See, my mum my and dad are, are getting on a bit now, but we occasionally get out on the bikes together as a family. And it's always just been about the fun of riding bikes. And then that turned into more competition for me. Wow, your mum and dad are still out riding with you. That's great. Yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty special. Uh, last Christmas, we had a, a great time. So, 
it was me, uh, my mum, my dad, my wife, and my daughter Zoe all out riding in mountains together um, on the day after Christmas. Perfect. Mm, I was going to ask you if your wife and daughter ride, but I guess that's that's sort of a given at this point, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Monica can ride. Um, Monica's she doesn't your wife. love it. Yeah, my wife Monica. She 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 can operate a motorcycle. She can, actually she can ride a lot better than she thinks she can, but it doesn't really switch her on in the same way it does for the rest of us. So she's happy to come with us as a family activity, but she doesn't really uh, doesn't feel the love for it too much. Much prefers coming on the back with me. So how does she feel about you when you're when you're racing? Um, and uh, no stress at all. I think she actually. Uh, it's the one area of, uh, of our life where she completely trusts me hundred <laughs> percent. You know, when I'm, when I'm going off to do these races on the other side of the planet, I think she's more worried that I'm going to lose my passport or get lost, uh, you know, do something stupid than she would be, uh, injuring myself in the race. You did spend time riding around with you and your wife. I guess this is before your daughter was born. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, that was kind of my, my entry into adventure bike riding. Um, my, my first adventure bike was a Suzuki DR650. And I, other than riding it to work, I basically didn't ride it with our moniker on the back. You know, that was our bike that we, that was our bike. And we traveled all around New Zealand like that, uh, two up on the DR and had, had some, some great adventures and really good times together. And that was kind of my, my stepping stone into the world of adventure bike riding. What do you mean you didn't ride with that moniker on it? I, I basically didn't use the, uh, you know, if I was going to go for a ride by myself, I'd jump on my race bike, I'd jump on my KTM. Oh, I see. Um, the DR was, was our bike. So I, I pretty much didn't use it unless Monica was coming with me. It was That was our bike that we rode together. So you rode the DR650 kind of as a street bike? Uh, we, no, as an adventure bike, as a dual sport bike. So we, we went all over the place together and mm. some really stupid places off-road. Um, and actually, when, when I... Got my first, uh, well, when we, were, we were about to go and do a big trip down the South Island and a friend of mine was selling his 950 KTM Adventure. And I decided, man, that this is the bike. I, I wanted to buy this specific bike. I knew the guy was really, really good with his maintenance. It was a perfect secondhand buy. And without really talking to Monica too much, I slyly sold the DR and, and bought the KTM. And brought it home and Monica's first reaction was not good. She actually started crying. Uh, she looked at the bike and said, what have you done? Why have you bought a road bike? How are we supposed to have any fun on one of these? <laughs> and, uh, this is the KTM 950 adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So from her exposure, all she'd ever seen me riding was, was you know, full on enduro bikes and motocross bikes and, and our DR. And then I came home with this giant KTM and she thought, I'd condemned us to a life of road riding and literally she was in tears and I thought, just give us an hour. I'll change the tires. I'll do a couple little things. I'll take you out for a ride and then you'll see. And I think her first reaction was, Oh, my, my, my bottom doesn't hurt on this one. I quite like it. <laughs> so that transition from dirt riding to adventure bike through the DR650, I guess, was there something else in there? Some other motivation to get into adventure riding? Definitely. Like for me, uh, motorbike riding has always been a, a, a way of getting out and finding adventures. So even with the racing, like the smaller races, you know, where you're doing like multiple laps around a closed course, that, that was good fun. It was good riding, but it didn't really fire me up. It didn't really excite me as much as like the big races where we, we went places, we, we had an adventure. 
So you mentioned the Roof of Africa before. I mean, that race is one of the most incredible adventures every time. Uh, you, you're sitting on the start line. You're going into the super remote mountains in, in Lesotho, riding for 10 hours at a time, no idea where you're going, just you and your bike. So that adventure style of racing and traveling and going places on my motorbike, even in a race scenario, that's what really, really excited me. So then it kind of, the non-competitive exploring side of that on the adventure bike was kind of a, a natural progression. You went from from being into dirt riding and obviously doing very, very well at this into adventure riding. You're now teaching people how to ride adventure motorcycles. And I, I guess you're still riding, you're still teaching dirt as well. Yeah, yeah. So my take on it, the way to describe it is I teach riding motorcycles off-road. Mm. Uh, whether that's, you know, down to the, tr- we still do a little bit on the trials bikes, um, enduro riding, enduro racing, trail riding, or the, the adventure bike stuff. So it's, it's off-road skills for uh, off-road motorcycling. It, it almost didn't work out this way, though. You almost you almost did this this terrible path of becoming a mechanical engineer. Well, you did. You became a mechanical engineer, but you could have been doing that for a living. Yeah, and I did for a very long time. Um, you know, in New Zealand, uh, we're a small country. We're, we're quite remote. Um, the motorcycle industry is not huge. So earning a living... Uh, riding motorcycles in New Zealand is nigh on impossible. Um, so I, I was working as a as a millwright all the way up to till 2010, where I actually got fired because I was taking too much time off to go racing all the time. Um, in retrospect, it was completely fair enough. It seemed very unjust at the time, but it was completely fair enough. So yeah, I, I was working uh, working, you know. 40, 50 hours a week training and trying to race as well. So it was busy times. Of course, I'm, I'm only kidding when I'm talking about mechanical engineer. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great job for anybody. Um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. but, I, I don't regret quitting. Well, no, I, I guess not what you could have if it didn't work out so well. I mean, if you went and raced and you just weren't that good, then you'd probably be back at it. Yeah. And I always encourage, um, any of the young guys that I'm working with uh, that think they're going to make their living out of racing motorbikes, man, you, you need to have a plan B. Mm. You know, I've been pretty successful in my motorcycling career. You know, I've, I've done pretty well, I, I think, um, achieved the goals that I've wanted to achieve. But you never know what's coming up. So, like, at the moment with this crazy virus going on, I might not be able to travel this year outside of New Zealand. So there's a pretty good chance I'm going to be back on the tools and back to – back to putting the overalls on and doing a bit of millwright work to try and get our family through this. So mm. you, you need to have that plan B because your motorcycle motorcycle competitive career can be cut short at yeah. any time. I mean, how many people did you compete with? Like we're sort of in your class, I guess, when you're going along to have this one person that stands out that you're, yourself out of that crowd. I mean, you're, you're talking a lot of people vying for very few positions. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that's, uh, that people fail to recognize early on. I think in New Zealand, it's not so much of a thing now. People realize that there's, you know, there's small avenues for this, but, you know, you, you've got to look at, say, that if you use the, the World Motocross Championships as, as an example, there's maybe 10 teams, three riders on each team. You know, do the math. There's not many, you know, you've probably got a better chance of winning the lottery. Why you? What, what, what is there different about the way you did things or the way you approach things 
that made you sort of get ahead above everybody else? Um, I was, to be honest, probably just completely obsessed with it. Um, I was more than happy to work harder than anybody else. Um, and I just, I think I just kind of wanted it more. Um, I think I was just uh, a bit more passionate than your average guy around here. And I, I had much more desire to kind of get to where I wanted to go. Um, I think a big part of my success as well, especially in the early days, was I was perfectly happy to try and do things on virtually no money, zero budget. Uh, I just wanted to go and have the experience. So, you know, I remember you know, putting together a budget to go and race uh, an event like the uh, like the roof, for example. You know, work out what a sensible budget is for that event. Okay, I've got maybe a quarter of that. Ah, screw it, let's go anyway. We'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, happy to sort of sleep on people's floors and happy to you know me- you know be my own mechanic and change my own tires and that sort of thing. But just wanted to chase the experiences. And from there, that, that kind of got things going better from there. You know, I think sometimes, especially in, in the racing world, people think they need this perfect scenario to perform at their best. And, you know, it obviously does make it easier. But I, I was happy just to kind of bluff it through and, you know, just try and get there. And I think that that really paid off. I think for me, a, a big part of it was just, just had literally had nothing to lose. You know, if it, if it doesn't work out, well, who cares? I'll just go back home and keep going back to engineering. And and for a long time, I, I kind of lived this almost like double life where back home in New Zealand, I would be overalls on, work boots on, working uh, as a millwright, doing all sorts of horrible jobs. And then I'd get an opportunity to go and do a race. I'd, you know, get all my sponsor's gear on, my flash hats and, you know, go and pretend to be this international motorbike racer go to some country you know be on the national news signing autographs all that sort of stuff and then they would finish come back home overalls back on again and start trying to save up enough money to do it again (laughs) but it was so much fun (laughs) well i I know you have um, lots of experience teaching all different people how to ride motorcycles you've also taught narcos drug lords to ride motorcycles how do you find yourself doing that? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so in the early days, uh, basically, you know, no money, no money whatsoever. And it it was a downside at times. It made racing harder, but it also made me way more open to different opportunities and different things that come about. So uh, it also put me into some interesting situations as well. So. Uh, one time I was in, in Mexico doing riding schools and uh, doing a race in Mexico. And then we decided to head down to Guatemala uh, because the Latin American Enduro Championships were in Guatemala. So we went down for that. And the first weekend in Guatemala, we did a riding school, uh, Enduro school, taught a whole bunch of guys. And then the plan was just to basically explore around uh, Guatemala for the week on the dirt bikes uh, before the race at the weekend. And we... Uh, got this phone call out of the blue from a guy who's like, hey, I, I hear you do, um, do, do dirt bike training. Uh, I, me and my two friends, well, we really need to learn how to ride our bikes better. Would you come and teach us? We'll, we'll pay you whatever you want. And man, that's, you know, that's uh, music to your music. Ears. That's stage of life, right? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so, you know, 
possibly a little little bit naive uh, coming from you know a, a small sheltered country like New Zealand. And we so we headed off to this guy's place and the you know, big gated community. Drove to the back of the gated community and there's this big ten foot high wall with a big steel uh, steel door. Not that with a number on the door. And I go, no, this is the place. Knock on the door. And it was very obvious, very straight away that uh, how this guy earned his living was definitely uh, involved in the in the drug trade. What and, do you mean uh, it was obvious? Oh, like just as soon as the door opened, like, yeah, this is a narco territory. You know, there's <laughs> the two friends that the guy wanted to coach were actually his bodyguards. And he said, yeah, the problem is I can ride really well, but these two guys, they can't keep up and they need to be able to keep up. And the whole time they were riding, they had these massive big chrome uh, pistols attached to their belts with two big clips of ammo on the other side. And, you know, we basically, uh, it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen uh, a pistol. You know, that I don't think I've ever seen a pistol in New Zealand. So, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> so at this point, when, the, when you realize this, do you want to bolt? Um, no. No, you still no. want the money. <laughs> <laughs> you still need the money, but... It's a tricky thing, I guess. When you're in that circle, uh, inside the circle, they're, they're nice people. You know, they're friendly, they're welcoming, they're generous. Uh, it would kind of seem kind of cool. Um, what what did freak me out though is uh, we ended up staying there the night, and we were staying like in, in the guest accommodation, and the food they served us was just amazing. Then. Um, if there's one talent I have is that I can eat, I can, I can put away food. So we had the meal and there was a whole bunch of leftovers left afterwards. And I thought, okay, I'm going to you know, give it, give it an hour. Then I'm going to attack the leftovers. And I was going around the, in the kitchen, uh, this guest accommodation, trying to find uh, some cutlery. And you know, when you're looking for the cutlery drawer, you kind of half open each one and, you, and you're looking for the heavy one because that's mm-hmm. the cutlery drawer. It's generally the heaviest one. So I kind of half open. Oh yeah, that's the heavy one. Oh no, that's not the cutlery. That's the one that's full of loose ammo. <laughs> that's when I really started to freak out. <laughs> and, uh, it's a we need to get out of here. It's it's time to go. You taught these guys to ride better. Did they, they learn something? Yeah, they, 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 there was a lot for them to learn. Um, yeah, we, we, we did. We made a, a, a quite a big improvement to their riding, and I hope that they use that for good, not for evil. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they did. But so, do you end up having to? Do you, do you end up getting a call back from these guys? Uh, no, not from those guys in particular. But I did. Uh, man, I don't know if I'm incriminating myself here, but uh, I did end up going back and forth to Mexico quite a bit and teaching uh, uh, another guy um, who was obviously of questionable income as well. Um, so uh, I was back in New Zealand, um, you know, in my overalls working away and uh, I get a phone call from a friend. Uh, hey, remember that guy that, uh, that came to the riding school a month ago? Like, yeah, yeah, Juan. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. He wants to go riding with you this weekend. What? Uh, I'm in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Can you come to Mexico this weekend? Like, Okay jump on the plane, fly to Mexico. They're going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah it's all, all, all paid, you know, fly out their business class, happy times. Um, that man taught the guy, had a great time. Again, when you're in that circle, nice, friendly, respectable, very, very nice guy. Um, obviously, you have to keep the blinkers on and don't think about it too much. 
Mm. And then uh, we're sitting around afterwards, you know, on the Sunday, sitting around eating some tacos in this amazing Mexican restaurant across the road from the bike shop we were working out of. No break in the conversation, no eye contact, but a, a quick tap on the leg under the table. Big roll of $100 notes. Little wink. Back on the plane, back to New Zealand. Wow. That yeah. ended up happening two or three times, and then the guy just disappeared. No one ever heard from him again. Left all his motorbikes in the, in the workshop. And, yeah, yeah, well, that, that's, that's one of the hazards of the business, I think. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be too long a term a solution. Boy, you could have ended up doing a completely different video series then. You could have ended up having things in there like like how to corner with your assault rifle, how, how to ride with one hand. Yeah, well, you, you laugh, but we actually, I, mean, I, I can't talk about it too much, but I do a fair bit of training with the uh, New Zealand military uh, on riding motorcycles. They, they have a fleet of K, KTMs and we are actually teaching that sort of stuff. Well, that's yeah. not so bad. I mean, that, that's that's at least above board, right? Yeah, we're teaching the other side now as well, right? They can meet in the middle, <laughs> see who we listen to best. <laughs> what was the turning point? Where do you go from, I mean, aside from being fired, maybe that was a turning point. Where, where is that turning point from you knowing that you have to get on those coveralls to, all right, now this is what I'm doing? It sounds cliche, but the uh, the turning point was actually winning something. Um you can come second and third all your life in the racing world and you know, you'll get some help. You'll get some support when you actually start to get those wins. Uh, that's for me, that's when life started to change. Um, and for me, that was, that was winning the roof of Africa from there. The support started to come on, come in. People started to take me more seriously. And, uh, the big emphasis as well was my wife just kicked me up the butt and said, Hey, you know, you're miserable in your job. Just get, you know, <laughs> You've been sacked from this one. Don't go hunt out another one. Just throw yourself into what you love and, you know, we'll, we'll sort the money out later. We'll figure that out. Well, what I was asking you, I mean, you know, what's, what's sort of your secret and you're saying, you know, or, or the reason you made it and others didn't to your position and you're saying that you wanted it more, but, but going to um, one race like the Roof of Africa and winning the one and then trying to win another one afterwards, it's kind of like a, you know, I'm sure musicians run into this all the time. They, they, they get their first, you know, hit that plays on the radio to get that second hit, I mean, there's not only tremendous pressure in there, but now it comes down to, do I have a formula or is it luck and hard work? Uh, for me, to be honest, it was almost the other side. It was the other way around, um, you know, to try and get that first, a perfect way to describe it. The first time I got to go and do the race, the first time I won it, my team was put together by a, a guy I met in the reception area of KTM in Austria. Um, and he put together a team of his friends. I was, I had sponsors that were the local pet store, the local bottle shop, um, a bearings wholesaler down the road. We got a little camper, um, a friend, friend of a friend sort of thing, bought a new motorbike and allowed me to use it in the race. And we went along and, you know, on the bones of our ass kind of won the race. The next year, you know, the follow-up's supposed to be harder, but I had full factory support. I had the best bike I'd ever ridden in my life. I had more tires than I could possibly use in the event. So it's almost in the motorcycle industry, I, I find, especially in enduros, once you get that first result, then you kind of, people start to back you and, and the ball starts to get rolling. So, yeah, and everyone always says that, you know, the follow-up album for a musician is is the hardest, but uh, I actually found it the other way. The, the hardest slog for me was getting that first hit. 
Yeah, but once they come on board with you and, and you're sent out again to race now all of a sudden with factory support, there's a lot riding on that. Uh, yeah, there is, but but you've got the gear, you know, you've got the you've got the equipment, you've got the support that you need to make it make it work. Um, and you know, before getting that, uh, the perfect example would be suspension. In the years before, I would either run completely stock suspension, or I'd pull it apart and try and fiddle around with it and try and improve it to the best of my ability. You get that win. The next year, you're on the factory suspension, which turns your bike into a complete hover bike. You know, it just <laughs> rocks and bumps, cease to exist. Um, and you, you're still racing against the same guys. You know, the level hasn't gone up that much, but all of a sudden, you're on the same level playing field. You know, you're on the hover bike. You've got the best gear. When you come into the pits, then, you know, you've got the best mechanic there. The, de- the deck gets stacked more in your favor once you get that initial foot in the door and you know for, for racing winning is what puts your foot in the door do you think that is the same for maybe the average rider you know with a, a stock bike as opposed to a bike that's that's nicely dialed you think that sort of they'll, they'll get that advantage from it oh yeah I, I think a big big thing we come across uh, is you know the best you know is the best you've ridden so someone might be riding along on uh, you know stock um you know riding their stock dr 650 suspension like man this thing's great it just eats everything but yeah try this one. Oh my gosh I, I i've never experienced anything like that and generally you don't you know you you don't know what you're missing until you until you take a taste and it's yeah the, a well set up bike just oh my gosh you you burn so much less energy you're so much more efficient. You're so much safer. Um, and in the racing world, you can just turn the handle farther and hold the gas on, but otherwise you're bouncing off everything. Mm, that's always good because I can always tell people I'm actually a, a lot better rider on a better bike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got to work together, obviously, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. Having your bike set up for you and properly is, you know, Obviously, this is not you know enduro racing radio. It's it's adventure radio. But even on the adventure bikes, um, yeah, it makes a, a heck of a lot of difference. Just in, in comfort and safety, if if, if nothing else. Hmm. You mentioned about getting this KTM nine fifty adventure. When you got that bike, was it was it a no brainer for you? Just get on and ride it, or did you get on it and do some things that um, made you sort of rethink how you had to handle a big adventure bike compared to a dirt bike? Um. To be honest, I kind of just jumped on it and I remember you know, there's, there's, there's that initial sort of, oh my gosh, this thing is huge. But then one thing I really remember is having it on the center stand in, in my garage and standing up on it and closing my eyes and going, no, everything's exactly in the same place as my dirt bike. You know, the foot plates are in the same place. The handlebars are in the same place. The, the controls are in the same place. I can ride this thing. It still speaks dirt bike. It's just big. Um, and I kind of just got on it and rode it and, and, and loved it straight away. Uh, the biggest struggle I've had, uh, probably adapting from, you know, the dirt bike, um, you know, racing world onto my adventure bikes has been the road riding side of things that, that that's where I've really had to work the hardest. And what do you mean? Really, so? Um, just cause the, you know, the techniques are so different, um, 
you know, for example, you know, a high speed corner on the road, you know, you're, you're dropping your hips to the inside, you're dropping your head to the inside, you're dropping your elbow to the inside. That's how you crash a dirt bike. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so to kind of get to the inside like that, every alarm bell on my head was just going, nah, man, what are you doing? You know, the, don't do it. Don't do it. But as <laughs> because you're actually, coming, you're coming from off road racing only and then going to street riding. Yeah. Kinda. yeah I see. Yeah. And growing up the, the number one rule in our house was no road bikes, you know, do whatever you want on your dirt bike, but no one's getting on a road bike. Why? Um, um my parents always just considered them really dangerous. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I knew what the answer was going to be, but I had to ask anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, and people think, you know, surely, you know, racing, motorcycles is off-road in these remote places is dangerous. And I, I think, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but in the enduro and the racing, you're much more likely to break your arm, get bruised, get scratched, you know, concussion, that sort of thing. On the road, you're way more likely to die, mm. which is, it's not the nicest thing to say, but uh, kind of, unfortunately, it's true. Well, a lot of what you're racing, or you used to race, and I'm not sure if you're still racing it, but was hard enduro. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so hard enduro kind of exploded in about sort of 2005, 2006. It didn't really exist before then. Um, so your average, your normal sort of enduro event uh, years ago was really difficult. Um, you on the bike for a long time, um, difficult terrain, real slog to get to the finish sort of thing. And then as it kind of progressed, it went away from that and became more about sort of sprint speed, um, easier terrain that everybody can get around, almost more sort of motocross technique-based. Uh, and that worked really well for a lot of people, but then for a lot of people, there was, nah, this is not really what I, what I, what I got into the sport for, and I, I was definitely one of those. And so from there, the sport of, of hard enduro or extreme enduro kind of segmented off from, from normal conventional enduro. And all these crazy events started to crop up around the world, um, which were very, very difficult terrain, very extreme. Um, and it was all just focused about, you know, whether you can actually get through this horrible terrain. So the best way to describe it uh, would be talking about an event called the Erzberg. So it's uh, the Red Bull Hair Scramble Erzberg event. It's one of the most famous um, uh, hard enduro races in the world. Uh, the last time I did that event, there was 1,700 entries, uh, 500 people qualified, and nine people finished it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just, that's yeah, just because it's too rough for, for most people. Uh, yeah, just it basically you just cannot get your motorbike through it. It's just impossible. Um, they want it to be as hard as it possibly can, and they don't care how many people – they stop along the way. <laughs> the, the goal is to stop the people. Yeah. We're going to take just a quick break here. i got a couple of things to tell you about, and then we're going to be right back with a lot more. Stay with us. Get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, get going. The world is waiting. That's what they say at Overland Expo. They also say that the Overland Expo is the world's premier event for do-it-yourself adventure enthusiasts. And um, I know from people that have gone to the show previously, there is so much going on and so much to experience and so much information for overlanders. It's incredible. You won't be able to take it all in over, over the weekend. You could go to a, a couple of different ones and see and experience different things. 
Now, they've got three events. Overland Expo started out as one event in Flagstaff, Arizona. That was the first one. Now they've added another one in Colorado. Sorry, they added another one in Virginia and then uh, this new one in Colorado. So they got three across the country. You have no excuse to miss it, really. You, you can plan your dates around. Now, Overland Expo West in Arizona, um, they had the date change on that because of this COVID-19 situation that we're in. So Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona is July 24 to 26, 2020. Overland Expo Mountain West in Loveland, Colorado is August 28 to 30, 2020. And then Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia is October 9 to 11, 2020. These are huge shows. It's a it's a must-see event. Go to their website, overlandexpo.com, to book your tickets. Now, here's the thing. You need to get your tickets in advance. You cannot get them at the gate. They're not available there. Get them in advance. And um, when you go to their website and you're booking your tickets, make sure you, you tell them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's overlandexpo.com. You've probably heard the term Farkle. Farkle means to add accessories to your bike or to change things, usually in a big way. You know, someone who likes to Farkle will have a whole bunch of things bolted onto their handlebars, etc. Sometimes I think people say it in a derogatory way, but some people like those extra things. But the point is, no matter whether you like Farkles or you're running a bike that's basically stock, if you want the most from your ride, and you do, even if you're running a bike that's completely unmodified, then you need to get rid of those factory pegs and get a set of IMS products foot pegs. IMS has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that they've designed from the ground up for adventure riders. No matter what your style of ride, no matter what bike you're riding, this will improve your connection between you and your bike at a point that is the most important point, your feet. IMS products are made with a cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA. And on top of all of that, they warranty their pegs for life. Have a look at their foot pegs at imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, even if you're just inquiring, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. I want to talk about um, about skills here and sort of the crossover. And that's where I was going with that a few minutes ago. It's sort of that crossover from dirt to adventure bike and those things. Now, have you ever ridden trials? Yeah, I actually started off riding trials. Um, my, my dad's a, a big trials rider, or ha- has been his whole life. Um, he was actually the, the clerk of the course for the Scottish six-day trial back in the days. Mm, wow. Yeah, so uh, my, my early days of riding motorbikes was all trials based um just going along to the events with mum and dad and following them around as they went through the sections and yeah i i really enjoyed trials but you know new zealand's a small country but we only have five million people um so after once i sort of became a you know, late teenager it all got a bit a bit too familiar you know you're going to the same competitions riding the same courses against the same people getting the same results and uh, I, I got a little tired of trials and just then decided to move into enduros. But man, that, that grounding in trials, that starting in trials, that's, that's been so beneficial. Um, and it's such a big thing for your safety too. Like it, in trials, you learn so many you know, base fundamental skills, but at, at a low speed. You know, you, you're figuring out your balance, you're figuring out your control at 10 kilometers an hour rather than setting going into motocross and figuring it out at 30, 40 kilometers an hour over a jump. Right. 
So from trials to dirt racing to adventure bike, do you see these all as the same? Because you're saying you're standing on your, on your adventure bike and you're sort of thinking that it's, yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Do you see it all the same or do you see taking certain aspects of those disciplines and bring it into adventure riding? For me, like, I think it's, I would say 75% all the same. And the thing I always come back to, and we talk about it in the schools a lot as well, is it's riding a motorcycle off-road. So a lot of the time, enduro guys will say to me during class, oh, yeah, that's a trials thing, right? I'm like, nah, not really. It's it's a riding a motorbike off-road thing. And then same thing with the adventure schools. Guys will go, oh, yeah, that's an enduro bike thing. That's a dirt bike thing. Like, no, not really. It's it's a riding a motorcycle off-road thing. Um, and, yes, obviously there are subtle differences. That, you know, there's techniques that don't cross over at all, but the – the base of it, the, the real sort of, you know, balance, traction control, how you move on the bike, your foot peg inputs, your handlebar inputs, how you balance yourself on the bike. It's it's riding motorbikes off-road. And I think, we you know, we, we pick the best from adventure, we pick the best from trials, we pick the best bits from enduros, mix them all up, and that, that becomes a, a rounded off-road rider. Well, I see some some things that are, are quite different from, you know, you see somebody riding a dirt bike compared to an adventure bike. For instance, turning, you know, with a dirt bike, people will slide up really far. They'll they'll be sticking a foot out on a corner. Um, when it comes to adventure bike, you're often standing on your peg and digging your, your knee into the tank much slower and sort of a different, I don't know, to me, it looks like a, a totally different balance. I, mean, I don't know. I know yeah, I just yeah. said that no, I realized you-, <laughs> you can't have a different balance, can you? No, you can't. So, you, yeah, you, you're completely right. Like, it looks physically different. Like, the picture looks different, but you're achieving the same thing. You know, you're, you're focusing your weight over the tires, you're grounding your tires, you're pushing your weight to the outside to drive that bike into the tire, and you're trying to center over your tire to move as one, to keep the balance, to keep the traction, to keep the control. On a trials bike, you're doing it, you know, feet up, hips out on, on, on your pegs, on maybe stay like a 690 or, or an enduro bike sort of thing. You know, you, you're sitting down, you're right up the front of the seat, but you're focusing your weight down over those tires. On the big adventure bikes, obviously the, the tank, the airbox pushes you back, so you're, you're up on the pegs, but you're still focusing that weight over the tires. So the actual, what you're trying to achieve, the goal is, is exactly the same, but there's kind of different pictures that, uh, that allow you to get there. Does it come down to one thing? I mean, if somebody asks you, you know, hey, Chris, what's the secret? Is, is there some sort of secret sauce? Is there some sort of secret concept that you have in your mind that allows you to become a better rider? Is there one? Or if there is, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying. So, <laughs> I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> okay, we'll have to do that another time. But okay, yeah. so in the meanwhile then, so let's let's take a little bit broader look at it then. Are there basic skills then, and I, and I know there are, but I mean, what, what, do you, what do you consider the basic skills that if someone was to practice, it would make them a better rider on an adventure bike? So one of the things we talk about a lot in the, skill, uh, in the school sorry, is balance, traction, and control. And my theory is if you're on balance, if you have traction, and if you have control, you can do anything. You can take your bike anywhere you want to go, do whatever it is you want it to, to do. As soon as one of those leaves, the whole thing comes crashing down. You know, as soon as you run out of balance, as soon as you run out of traction, as soon as you run out of control, any manner of bad things can start to happen. So every skill we do, every technique we develop 
is always trying to increase your ability in one of those areas, balance, traction, or control. The body position could be that we're working on could be faced, uh, based around trying to find more traction. It could be based around trying to find more control. It could be balanced around trying to find more, more balance. So if the practice drill that you're doing is not working on one of those three things, then you're wasting your time in my mind. <laughs> um, so that's, well, the, that's well, what we're always trying to focus on. Well, the balance one is obvious. Uh, you know, I, th- I yeah. think for, for most of us, traction, I mean, that's also obvious. We only have a certain amount of traction with that tire. What do you mean by control? Um, control is, I guess that's that's the blurry part of it, right? Um, and that's where, you, you know, your brake control, your throttle inputs, your clutch control, that sort of thing. You know, that, that absolute, you know, ninja level mastering of the control. So it's, the power is coming in at exactly the right time in the right way. The clutch is getting delivered in exactly the right time in the right way. And it's all being practiced and drilled to the point where it's uh, it's subconscious. You're not having to think about it. And therefore, you're, you're able to focus your attention, your, your process of speed on, on your line selection and, and, and the other aspects of riding. So we spend a lot of time really trying to hone up. You know, one thing that we struggle with a lot on adventure bike guys is rear brake control. So for a lot of guys, their rear brake control, especially if they've come from, from road riding, their brake's almost like an off-on switch. You know, the brake's either full on, full off. There's, there's no control, there's no modulation there. I try and encourage my guys to think of your rear brake like a dimmer switch that you can wind in and out and modulate and control that. So that's where we really try and, uh, sorry, going around in circles a little bit, um, that would be a big part of where that control side of it comes into that actual control of the rear brake. So finesse is is a lot to do with this. I mean, I, I always think of you know with riding adventure bikes in particular slow speed. It's I mean, and that's that's actually something in itself because often people get on a bike and they think if they can ride it down the highway. You see this sometimes with with street riders they think that they're doing fine, you know, that they can, oh, they can ride the bike, but, but it comes down to that slow speed control and finesse. I mean, I see in, in all three of these things you're talking about balance, traction and control. Does that make sense? It does. The problem I have with that though, is finesse seems to be to almost exclusively North American expression. <laughs> <laughs> Most countries yeah, I go right. to, if I talk about finesse, I've no, I barely understand it. No one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but no, you are, you are right, you know, especially with these big bikes, you know, we need to be gentle, we need to be subtle, we need to work our way, you know, be accurate. We're not trying to smash and bash through like a bulldozer. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's where finesse comes into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the thing is with a big bike, you see the dirt bikes go around and they're fast and they're hard, they're aggressive. And, and you just can't seem to get away with that with a big bike. I mean, you've got the weight, which is, I guess is the, the biggest thing with it to deal with. Mm. Uh, uh, one, one thing that often, uh, it makes me giggle, you know, guys, uh, we'll see some of these videos that we make and, oh, it's incredible how you muscle that big 1190 around like, Dude, I don't muscle it. What are you kidding? <laughs> it's two hundred kilograms. It's one hundred and fifty horsepower. Look at me. I'm not muscling it. You know, I'm not fighting the bike. How on earth could I ever win that fight? You know, I'm, I'm very nicely and gently and accurately and subtly asking it to do what I want it to do. There's no fighting. There's no muscling. Often when, when we think of riding adventure bikes, we think of slow speed maneuvers and this is what you see everywhere. And this is the skills that we often learn regardless of, of who's teaching the school. But your slogan is say no to slow. 
<laughs> You're gonna have to explain yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I was I was waiting for this one. <laughs> it's good marketing, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. <laughs> we have to come up with something. <laughs> I mean, uh, the slogan of being happy, poodling along, uh, nice and quietly, didn't really have the same ring to it. Um, and, and it's a bit of a two-edged sword. That one, you know, it catches people people's attention, but you know. If you come along to a school at any chance, you, you'll see that we're not actually talking about hooning down the trail and, you know, being ridiculous. I, I understand that most people don't actually want to go and blaze trail on their adventure bikes. Most of us just want to be able to uh, to get where we want to go with uh, with efficiency and confidence. And, no, I don't think you're right there. Right? I think everybody does want to ride really fast like you do, but just well, we can't. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we just can. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, with the, with the schools, we, we are trying to put that, that basic framework in place so that you, if you choose to, you can say no to slow. I'm not saying mm-hmm. you have to, but, you know, just trying to give people that, that confidence and that skill to, you know, take their bikes where it is wherever it is they want to go rather than being scared of looking down that trail and wondering oh gosh what's down there and that i always say to guys at the start of the schools like i'm going to try and teach you guys balance traction and control you guys can turn that into whatever it is you want to turn it into you can turn it into more efficiency you can turn it into more speed you can turn it into going more out of the way places we'll give you the skill sets that you need to go and turn it into whatever it is you want to do I thought you might go to the uh, momentum thing. I thought that's what you were going to say. Say no to slow was was all about using momentum. Momentum well, and, that, and confidence, I guess. Yeah, that is something we, we talk about an awful lot of the schools. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, the risk analysis side of it. So with the adventure bike guys, especially in New Zealand, it's generally older guys. You know, your average client for, uh, for the Enduros could be a guy in his 30s. Uh, adventure bikes generally tack at least 20 years onto that. And so we tend to get a little bit risk averse at that, that, that stage of life. And we'll often stop during the school, uh, during the ride and go, hey, let's do a bit of risk assessment here. Imagine we've got to get the guys to go up, you know, a, a bit of a, a steep incline. So we're all on big bikes. We're all on expensive bikes. We don't want to crash. We don't want to fall over. If we're too careful here, if we don't attack this hard enough, if we don't have enough momentum, we're going to get, Two-thirds of the way up this hill, we're going to run out of momentum. We're going to have to start using trying too much power. There's not going to be the traction. You're going to fall over. We call it uh, the post-45-75. So you're over 45 years old and you 75% commit to the uh, to the move, which gives you enough momentum, enough energy to get 75% of the way through it, i.e. stand stranded three quarters of the way up a hill in the worst place possible. So the risk assessment side of it is, you know, if we're more aggressive at the bottom of the hill, if we generate some momentum, if we get up, you know, we have something to work with in the bank, it might look like we're being reckless, but what actually what we're doing is giving ourselves energy to spare, momentum to spare, balance to spare, traction to spare. So by being a little bit more aggressive, we're putting ourselves into an actual safer, lower risk environment. Mm, if somebody's comfortable doing that. If they've learned the skills up to that point. Exactly. Once we've put a heck of a lot of work into, into that skill set. When do you, when do you say that that's, you know, something you don't do on an adventure bike? Because yeah, we all have different ideas of, and I guess it has to do with skill level as well. We have different ideas of what we will put our bikes through. 
what do you look at and you say, no, this is not adventure bike material? Me personally or to a, to a, to a student? Well, uh, yeah. different no, I, I don't think you personally, because I mean, that, that that's an anomaly. I mean, for the average rider. Um, I always say if, if the, if they can't see the escape path, if you can't see how, how you're going to get yourself out of the situation, if it goes wrong. Um, and that's the same thing I use in my head as well. Um, when I'm out exploring by myself, like if I want to go up this, up this bank, up this hill, whatever it is, how am I going to get myself out of the trouble if it goes wrong? Mm, gosh, I can't, there's, there's no way out of it. <laughs> Probably let's find a different way. Then let's find a better way. Uh, if you can visualize and understand how you're going to get out of the problem if it goes wrong, why not have a go at it? If you can't, rather give it a miss. What and that's you- uh, and something we teach a lot of the schools as well as, you know, different techniques of, of getting yourself out of that trouble in the, in the first place. Unstuck or whatever you Unstuck, happen to get into. Uh, yeah, and shutting it down safely and in difficult situations, you know, working on techniques not only for plan A, but working on techniques for plan B. Be- because with the adventure bikes, one of the big things is just the weight of the bike itself. Unless you're, you're very, you know, a large person and, you, and you're very strong and able to pick up your adventure bike. But even then, I mean, I, I can pick my bike up no problem at all, but I've had it in situations before where it goes down a bit of a slope and it's upside down. It's like, you know, it's very difficult to end up getting the bike back out. That's where I always think I could use a smaller bike or maybe a couple of years off my age. Yeah, one of my first rides on my on my nine fifty, my first real you know twin zone, the big adventure bike ride. I was you know so excited to get out on that bike, and I I uh, jumped on a road from my house out to the beach uh, near my parents' place in, in New Zealand. Uh, some of our beaches are, are public roads; you, you're allowed to ride up them all the way up the beach, right up to the end, up into the sand dunes, having a great time riding around the dunes, middle of nowhere, no cell phone reception. High sided down a dune, slid down to the base of the dune, you know, in a V between two dunes, handlebars down. Mm. Haven't told anywhere where anyone where I'm going. You know, no sat phone, no uh, no in reach, no nothing. Like, oh, uh, instantly in that moment, learned to uh, have some more respect for the adventure bikes. That's for sure. It took me a long time to get out of that situation. It was yeah, good good learning experience. That's what I was asking you about earlier when I was saying about the the difference or things that you might have learned with um, with the adventure bike. Um, are, are there any other things that you found with it where you you sort of screwed up at one point and realized, okay, that doesn't work for adventure bikes? I, the one that stands out in my mind straight away is sand whoops. Um, does that does that word cross over to you guys? Sand whoops? Yeah, I mean that's your, your the the, uh, the sort of the waves in the sand that are often made by yeah. dirt bikes. Yeah. Yep, you got it. I remember riding my 959. This thing's incredible. I can ride it exactly like a dirt bike. I can go wherever I want on this thing. Having the time of life down the first set of sand whips. Oh, my God, I can't do that. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that was quite an exciting experience. Well, because that's what I'm thinking. Because when you add that mass, when you add all all that mass to it, that has to change things incredibly. It it does, yeah. Yeah, especially, man, I've... You know, spending a lot more time on adventure bikes, I think I've kind of figured out my way to do just about whatever it is I want to do on them now. Um, but I haven't figured out a way to get down sand whoops properly. I just slow right down now. <laughs> 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 very, very strong respect for that. 
you ride uh, you ride only KTM's? Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, been riding for KTM since two thousand and four. So, like a factory sponsor? Yeah. Do you mean? Um, in New Zealand to start off with, um, up until sort of about 2008, 2009, where I started getting support from the factory for, um, for extreme enduros, for hard enduros. And then once the, uh, the adventure bike stuff sort of came around as a KTM factory adventure ambassador. Hmm. So, so you're still racing. You, you still, that, that is your life still. No, uh, I would say life at the moment is the adventure bikes it's rider training schools uh it's events for ktm and when the weekends free up i go and do a race just oh, I see. Mainly, mainly for fun and a big part of that to be honest is just, is just catching up with that community of friends and just enjoying riding my bike so you do training in new zealand uh, i know you've come to canada to do it you've actually come right here to british columbia to do it and now you've you've just launched um an online video series can you talk about that yeah, so that's uh, it's something I've kind of wanted to do for a while, um, and it's something that's been uh, requested a lot from our students. You know, I, I get asked to go to countries all around the world, and you know, we probably average about fifteen different countries a year sometimes. But there's a lot of countries that we just can't get to, and you know, I'm getting you know requests coming through like, "Oh, will you come to do a school in Nicaragua?" I'm like, oh. No, no, I, no, I won't. But I, I wanted to try and find a way to kind of reach these people and to help them um, with their riding. You know, as adventure riding seems to be sort of, you know, blooming and, and booming, uh, wanted to be able to help these people out. And so the the the, the videos was a, a good way to do that. You know, using the reach of the internet, and it's it's something that's uh, that's been quite successful. So we've that was the goal to reach more people. And I just checked this morning and we've now sold the video into 80 different countries. Wow. So nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been good. Yeah. It's only been out for how long? Uh, just over a week. So you, you've broken it down into lessons. Yeah. So we've got uh, 16 different lessons starting off from absolute pure basics, like how to stand on the foot pegs properly, um, how to stand on the bike properly, your correct standing position, your correct seated position all the way through to, you know, drifting, sliding, wheelies, jumping logs, all that sort of stuff. And we tried to give it a, a really uh, clear progression path all the way through. So most people are, are buying the whole series and getting the whole story, but we, I wanted people to be able to just jump in at any point as well. So you can go and purchase each episode individually just for five bucks. So if someone really wants to just understand standing cornering, they can just buy that. If they really just want to learn how to jump over logs, they can do that. But I hope that most people to, uh, to want the whole big picture the whole way through. And that's what most people seem to be doing. And you've done this up like um, almost like you're paying for a course sort of thing. You, you buy the, the, the videos and you sort of, like you said, it takes you right from start to finish as you're going through. Finish, I think, is what, what is the end? Is it wheelies? Um, I think drifting is the last one because that was mm. the highest risk. <laughs> so we wanted to make sure that... Uh, with, with drifting, drifting is about the only thing that we can't slow down. We can't practice it slowly first. Um, so it requires a lot of stuff to be in place before we get to that. And it, it is scary going through the analytics and seeing how many people haven't downloaded any other of the videos. They've just downloaded the <laughs> drifting one. Like, oh my God, where am I leading these people? <laughs> 
But I, I was thinking, I, I see what you're saying about drifting, but I was thinking that the dangers of wheelies, um, in particular with an adventure bike, if you have no experience doing wheelies, there's a lot of risk there. Yeah. From my experience, you know, we were doing the maths before. I think we've, we've taught about 7,000 people around the world so far. And I honestly, I think we've had maybe one or two injuries uh, doing the wheelie stuff. That's across dirt bike riding, adventure bike riding, all that sort of stuff. Um, we've probably had three or four injuries during the, during the drifting. Um, People high siding. No, it's the most, and we, we talk about this a lot during this, the, during the schools, but also in the videos, uh, we call it backwards foot syndrome. Um, mm. It's where guys, especially on the big bikes, on the big twins, uh, the bike starts to slide out, they're losing control and they leave their inside foot on the foot peg too long. And the bike comes down, traps their foot and the forwards momentum makes their toes dig in and your foot spins around backwards. Right. Yeah, it's not a nice thing to talk about, but mm. uh, we talk about different techniques and ways to to, to avoid backwards foot syndrome. Uh, I'm cringing as I as I sit here talking to you about it. It's just such a horrible injury. Yeah, it's a, the thought of low siding having your your foot dig in there is is pretty disgusting. But how do you teach somebody to do that to lift their foot up automatically without practice? Uh, we drill it into them. We give them the fear of God. I tell them all sorts of horrible horrific stories of where i've witnessed this happening on rides and it's it's the most common injury i've seen at all these different uh, adventure bike rides that i've been to around the world is, is you know ankle foot you know tib fib lower leg injuries and then i just make them go around corners and lift their foot up and try and you know bring that into their into their mind as much as possible and i won't go anywhere near drifting until we've uh, you know, really made a very strong big point on that. It is difficult. You know, it's hard to train a reflex reaction like that in such a high stress situation, like losing control. Um, but it's uh, it's something that we drill into the guys all the way through the schools. Um, anything you don't like the look of, just lift your foot up. Just get your foot up out of the way. You know, if that tree root, if that rock clatters your, your foot peg or your gear lever, who cares? If it clatters your foot, that's not polite. So anything that we don't like the look of especially on the big bikes because they're, they're so much wider so much lower we're just picking our feet up and, and keeping our feet out of the way when it comes to learning by video and when we have our rider skills program here on adventure rider radio where we do it with audio when it comes to those those types of things i mean you can only give so much instruction more more with the video i guess because they're actually seeing it but um is it a replacement for for taking a course i think it's it's um yeah, you're right. You can only learn so much in a video. Uh, you can only learn so much online. Um, but coming back to that, you know, that, that 80 country scenario, I would rather give guys, maybe if you can only get 70% of the picture, at least that's 70%, right? Mm. And it seems that there is that, that desire, that, that thirst right out there for, the, for that information. It's probably not the ultimate solution. Uh, I think, you know, the ultimate solution is, you know, one-on-one, you know, we, when we have the one-on-one stuff, I'm using video analysis of the riders. We've got them hooked up with, you know, Cardo headsets, which is, it's the best possible way to get any improvement. But I live in New Zealand. That's not really accessible for a lot, for a lot of people that seem to be asking for the information. What do you, so, what do you mean? You're, you're setting people up to do one-on-one instruction using like video? Yeah, yeah. So 
the guys, uh, we're doing uh, online video coaching as well. So I'm getting guys to film themselves riding, um, send me the videos. We're doing a bit of live streaming back and forth, um, trying to, especially, you know, with so much of us being in lockdown and with all this horrible virus stuff, mm. just trying to find ways to, I'll admit, keep my business running, but also still keep to, to reach people. Yeah. Well, that's the big thing, isn't it? I mean, it's that feedback of having someone like yourself who knows and can quickly spot those minor things that you may be doing wrong that could be causing big problems and be able to point them out and get you corrected rather than learning a skill you think you've got it nailed, but you've missed some fundamental points and you're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. You're always going to need that feedback. Mm -hmm. The feedback is the key. Having said that, you know, you can still learn an awful lot. Like I taught myself to ride trials. Um, using VHS tapes. Um, by the time I was sort of 14, 15, you know, I was, a. hopefully my dad doesn't listen to this. He'll give me a kick up the butt quite rightly too. By the time I was 15, I was a better trials rider than my dad. Um, <laughs> so I had to, I was, you know, so thirsty for this information that, uh, my, my uncle very kindly used to send me VHS tapes from, from England of, uh, the world trials championships, uh, and big trials events in the UK. And I'd sit there and, watch these videos over and over and over again, just completely analyze them and then go and jump on my bike and try and emulate it. So I, yeah, I, I did most of my trials learning once, you know, dad had tapped out, uh, from VHS tapes. Oh, so you weren't learning from instruction. You're learning from just watching the pros and, and mimicking sort of what they're doing or understanding what they're yeah. doing. Oh, remember you used to be able to press like frame advance on the, on the yeah. VHS. Yeah. I just sit there like donk. Donk, donk. Oh, that's what he's doing. Okay, gear on, on the bike. Let's go. <laughs> you can be a, you can be a passive learner from videos or you can be an active learner from videos. And you, I know which one you get a lot more out of from personal experience. Yeah, there's, there's nothing better than trying. Well, there's nothing replaces it, is there? Because you need to build that muscle memory. And I mean, you, we talked about lifting your foot up. If you can't, if you can't do that stuff without thinking, then it's not going to work. No, no. I mean, most, I'm sure most coaches will say the same thing. All, you, all we're really doing is teaching riders what to go away and practice. Mm. What, what does your engineering background do for you for riding? Anything? I think it does. It helps me out in my mind. It helps me out quite a bit. Um, so I have quite a distrusting mind. Um, I need to understand why every technique works. So as I was trying to develop my riding, as I was trying to work it through, you know, if someone was to say to me, okay, wait the outside foot peak for traction. Okay, why? Because it gives it more traction. Yeah, but why? Mm-hmm. So the engineering side of things and the, sort of the physics understanding behind that as well, I needed to know the real nuts and bolts, the why of how every technique works to kind of get myself to buy into it. And that's the process I try and give my students. You know, I don't want to tell them, do this because I say so. I want to tell them, do this because it's going to make your tire do this. It's going to make your bike do this. And this is the beneficial uh, reaction to that. Uh, I always really want to give people the why. And I think the engineering side of thing really helps with that mm. as well as, you know, the ability to fix your bike when things go wrong. You know? Yeah, that's, that's true too. No, I was going to say that's, that's always been my belief as well is that, and that goes for anything in life is if you understand the concepts of what you're working on and how it works, 
then you can sort of figure out where you go wrong. You know, you're doing something and, and something goes wrong. You can sort of analyze it yourself and go, okay, I get it. But yeah, if you're just following instructions, you'll have no idea. No. And a lot of it just comes back to, you know, basic physics, right? You know, every action is an equal and opposite reaction. Okay. What what's the reaction that I'm trying to create? Uh, you know, understanding your momentum, understanding the forces involved and what's going on. And I love that side of it. I, I, I geek out on it completely. Well, I watched your video series and I, and I really enjoyed it. And I thank you very much for that. Uh, that was great. And, and what we'll have to do is we'll have to get you back on the show one time to do um, maybe a couple of things. But one thing I'd like to talk about is your handlebar setup, because I, I just love the way you did that. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And to be honest, that's all just come from from trial and error. Um, spending a lot of time figuring out what works, what doesn't, looking at what other people do around the world and you know, I've been very, very fortunate. You know, I've, I've ridden motorbikes in, you know, 50 different countries now through racing and uh, through doing schools and events. And it, it's always good to be able to step back and, and look to see what good riders are doing. And, you know, the handlebar setup just it's just come from me researching it from for myself and understanding what's going on with the bike and asking people and, you know, trying to get that information for myself. And then once I understand it on that, on that sort of physics level, I'm more than happy to pass it on. Before I let you go here, I, I'm, I'm going to try and get some tips from you. So, so one thing I ask is that, is there a mod that you think that um, anybody could do to their bike to help improve the riding? I generally steer away from mods too much. I think I've got to be gentle here and polite. <laughs> People I, do I, love I, to farkle. There's no doubt. They do. Oh, and adventure riders more than anybody else. Yeah. Um, I find everyone is much more keen to invest in, in gadgets and gizmos than they are in time on their bike. Um, I would think that the, the best thing you can buy for your bike is tires. Um, mm. I personally, I would rather use one thing we talk about in the schools a lot in terms of off-road riding. If the tire lasts, it doesn't work. If it works, it doesn't last. So if you're thinking, hmm, should I spend $800 on a fancy doodacky for my bike? I think you'll get much more value for money out of three sets of tires that la- that work better off-road and maybe don't last as long. That makes perfect that makes sense. sense. Yep. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Now, as far as riders' skills go, I mean, if there's in a very general sense, without getting technical here, what would you tell people they should do to improve the riding? Work on their standing position. Hmm. That's that's the biggest thing. Um, and I find it, when everyone gets into riding off-road, everyone tells you to stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. But very few people actually tell you how to stand up properly on your bike. So then you start being uncomfortable on the bike, you start being unstable, um, inefficient, and you end up having to start modify your motorbike. So the perfect example of that, you know, is bar rises. Um, I should say I, I do genuinely listen to your podcast. So I was listening to um, uh, Jimmy Lewis talking about this and uh, how common he finds guys with really high bar rises. It's, we have the exact same battle. If someone comes to my school and they've got, you know, big two-inch bar rises, that's always a big alarm bell for me. Like, hey, this guy's standing position can't be right. He's not going to be on balance. We're going to have to spend a lot of time um, getting getting that correct because they, 
the number one thing I find bar risers do is they make it more comfortable to stand on your bike incorrectly. Stand up stiff, straight. Yep, yep. And uh, you know, no, no, no use of your hips is the biggest thing. You know, your hips are the biggest, strongest, most powerful joint in your body, and guys aren't using them. Then they stand too bolt upright with their butt tucked underneath them, and oh, that just creates so much more uh, issues than you could ever understand. For me, it doesn't matter whether I'm teaching someone trials, enduro, trail riding, adventure bike riding, whatever it is, the number one thing we'll always work on to start off with is your, is your correct standing position. And for some guys, it's just, it's like an absolute game changer, light bulb moment for them changing their standing position. It's, it's my favorite thing to teach because you can just see the instant improvement in, in, in control and balance on the bike. And my, my last question would be, what's the best adventure bike? <laughs> well, I, honest, I'm biased. Honestly, I'm, it's a tricky one because I feel like I'm, I'm betraying the bikes that I've had so much fun on in the past. My, my 1090 and my 1190s, like, I just had so much fun on those things. But man, the, the new 790 just blows them out of the water. It's mm. taken me a while to figure out that bike, uh, but it's it does everything better than any other bike I've ever ridden. Wow. And I can't even pretend not to be biased. Like I'm, you know, let's not even pretend that I'm not biased. Well, I mean, you are, you are sponsored by KTM. I wasn't yep. surprised that you chose, and I, by the way, I was kidding when I asked that question, but I'm glad you took it anyway. It's a common question. Probably the most common question I get asked through social media, isn't it? I know. And that's why I ask. I mean, it's, it goes right along with what's the best oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, it's always in 1090, 790, 10, And for, for quite a long time, uh, I had both. I had my, a 1090 and my 790, and I was back and forth, back and forth. Like, I, I don't know which one I prefer. And then I spent, uh, I, I actually I went and did the, the Hellas Rally. So it's a, a week-long um, uh, rally race through Greece uh, on the 790. So it was, you know, seven, eight hours a day, racing on, on the on the 790 and i came back from that event and i'd never rode my 1090 again since mm, wow so what is it you you said you had trouble sort of figuring it out what, what was it with the 790 that sort of perplexed you um I, I kept trying to ride it like uh like my uh like my 1190 like my 1090 uh it, it's a very different bike and i had to take a step back and stop trying to ride it the way that I wanted to ride it and ride it the way the bike needs to be ridden. Mm. So it's, which is closer to a more enduro dirt bikey style. Like I was trying to stand up and slide and drift the cor- through, uh, through corners like I would do my 1090. Um, whereas I should have been more dirt bike style on the seat, cranked over um, more dirt bike style. And once I kind of got my head around that, and started actually giving the bike what the bike needs. I was like, oh, okay, now I understand you, and, and now I love you. And it's they're such a fun bike to ride. Chris, great to sit down and talk with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for the opportunity.
I was speaking with Chris Birch from his home in New Zealand. His website is chrisbirch.co.nz. The link, of course, will be in the show notes, as we always do. Now, we mentioned briefly Chris's uh, video series that he has out, brand new video series, Say No to Slow Adventure Bike How-To Series. It's on Vimeo. It's also on his website there on the main page. I've seen the whole thing. It's quite a good series that he's put together there. Really good instruction. And um, also, I was going to mention, on the in the show notes for every episode that we do on Adventure Rider Radio, including this one, there's a comment section at the bottom. We'd love to get your comments, your feedback, any questions you have about the show. That's the place to put it. That's at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Remember, you can download all of our shows anywhere you find podcasts, and we would love it, love it, if you would go out and rate us on iTunes. Look at iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcast from and give us a five-star rating. We'd love you to get out there and let other people know about the show and what you think. And that goes for Facebook as well, anywhere that you can like the show. And we would love it if you would consider becoming a patron so that we can count on you monthly. It's built on a model of advertising and listener support, and um, we need your support. We definitely need your support. So drop by our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again. Uh, I'm extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin.